Kind of exciting to see that little video end uh, with the baseball player. Um, three of our guys from last year's team uh, signed uh, professional baseball contracts, as every year our baseball players do. Uh, for the third time in recent years, our baseball team went to the NAIA World Series. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing part of our college campus, the baseball program and our other athletic programs. One of the gals in our school, Karis Frankian, it's a little sweet Christian gal, won the gold medal for the entire United States in the 10,000 meters this year. Amazing program in track and field. Yeah, she's the first, she's the first uh, female athlete to win a, a national championship. Some of our the guys have won them in the past, so it's uh, wonderful to see them honor Christ in the area of athletics where the Lord has, has gifted them. I think some people think the Master's College, because of our emphasis on the Word of God, is, is a Bible school. It, it isn't. It is a university. In fact, uh, as of now, I can tell you it is now the Master's University, uh, so you've got to turn in your t-shirt if you've got something that says Master's College. Um, our, our graduates go everywhere. 98% of our pre-med pre-dental graduates that apply to med school, 98% of them are accepted. Uh, we, have, we have our graduates in med school at Johns Hopkins University. We have our pre-law students at Harvard Law School on a full scholarship. The world knows the quality of the education at the Master's College. Our business department has no equal. Um, in fact, just to let you know that, there is a measuring stick for the quality of a business department. It's called the CPA exam. Very difficult exam to, get, to become a certified public accountant. You have to go through a very intense exam. And uh, the rates at which the graduates of colleges and universities pass that exam are kept. And uh, there is a national institution that basically looks at that and ranks business schools. Um, pretty interesting. The uh, schools you might think of, uh, Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, UCLA, USC, Stanford, Pepperdine, their graduates pass the CPA exam at about a 50% rate, about 50%, uh, 52, 54, 53, 55. The Master's College graduates pass the CPA exam at a rate of 78%. That's about 50% higher than the flagship institutions in the state of California. In fact, we're first by a long shot. The nearest school to us is 12 percentage points behind us. Not only do we have the highest rate of passing, but our students average the highest score on the test of any college or university in the state of California. Um, the math department, pretty amazing. Some of our graduates recently even have been hired by some of the, some of the aerospace industry corporations in Southern California. So this is real education. Our graduates go to Pepperdine Law School, as I said, Harvard Law School, if they want to follow a career in law. They go to all kinds of medical schools, all kinds of graduate programs, science graduate programs. They know about us. In fact, um, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges, which is called WASP, that accredits everybody, UCLA, USC, us, everybody, uh, gives a 10-year accreditation a 10-year accreditation is the highest accreditation they can possibly give to mark the quality of an institution. 12% of the schools in WASC get a 10-year accreditation. We're one of the 12%. That's purely on academic merit, having nothing to do with the spiritual side. So when you come to the Master's College, not only do you learn the truth about the Word of God, which is the truth that extends to everything else, but you will be equipped at the highest level. We also are ranked in the top five colleges across America with the best faculty, with the best faculty. It's amazing. If you were to take Roman history at UCLA, you'd be in a class of uh, 150 people and you'd have a TA and uh, you could probably take it online. If you come to the master's college and take a course in Roman history, you'd be five in the class and you'd have a teacher who's a PhD from Carnegie Mellon in that kind of history. That's the difference in the level of education. It's intense, it's personal. And we can only take about 1,200 or 1,300 students, so it's a premium education. 
And if, and I know many of you are looking forward to college, you're thinking about college. I know it's important to, to, to be under the authority and the instruction from men who love and believe the Word of God. But it's equally important that you get a viable education, and we provide that for you at the Master's College in every sense. Um, people know we're around. They know the quality of our school. We have, uh, we have received mail. I've received mail at my desk as president letting me know from graduate medical schools, if you have any further students who want to go to medical school, please send them our way. We've seen the quality of the ones we've had before. So college education is a premium experience. You're, you're going to pay for it in time and money, and you want to make sure you get what you pay for, and you, you don't go to a school that's going to attack everything you believe and tell you lies about the way the world is. And we have to take a stand. State of California, as we speak this week, sort of finalized their effort to pass a new bill in California that requires all Christian colleges and all Christian universities to be non-discriminatory against lesbian, bisexual, transgender, homosexual, and queer people, which is to say we can't discriminate against any of those people. This is the law that is now passed through the, uh, the Senate of California, passed through the House Judiciary Committee, and will go to the House for a vote and then show up on the governor's desk. Inevitably, that's going to come. So uh, what are we going to do about that? Um, we're going to keep doing what we've always done. We're going to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to acknowledge the truth about life, the truth about sexuality, and that is the truth. And we're going to be faithful to that, and God is going to provide for us as He always has. Yeah, the, 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 the bill says that we have to be non-discriminatory against people who, who are experiencing gender fluidity. Gender fluidity. Um, there are things called chromosomes. You're either XX or XY, and that's a fact. Whatever you do to mess around with yourself, you're either XX or XY, and that's that. God made the male and female. That's it. That's who you are. Don't mess around with that. Of course, in a fallen world, you want to make that normal. So the Master's College is a very, very unique place, and uh, our students are in demand. I'll tell you why they're in demand, because they have character, and employers, people who hire people, are tired of people with no character, tired, really, of people with no morals, tired of people who don't show up on time, do what they're told, and do it with all their might. Committed Christians work like that. I used to hear all the time when I went to the Soviet Union, many, many trips over there, people would tell me that the best workers in the Soviet Union under the reign of communism starting in 1917 up to the perestroika and glasnost of a few decades ago, through all that era of communism, the, the people who always worked the hardest were the Christians because they were working on the basis of what Scripture says in Ephesians and Colossians. They were doing it heartily as unto whom? As unto the Lord. You know, it's not really hard to be successful if you know the skill, the field that you're in. And if you, here's the plan. You ready for this? Show up on time. Do what they tell you. Keep your mouth shut. Solve problems. Work hard. Make friends. Help everybody be better around you. And you'll go up the ladder like a rocket. It's all about character. That's... that's part of the education that we provide along with a lot of other wonderful elements and components. So we're very excited about what the Lord is doing there. Uh, we, we can't take everybody, obviously. We, we, can't, we can't do that. We've got limitations. So we want the very best, the brightest, and most committed. Um, we're in some transition in terms of our marketing at the college right now. But in the future, you're going to begin to see the images of the Master's University take new shape. With a new name, everything has to change, at least Everything that's in print has to change, and behind the scenes, we're going to begin to document and demonstrate the character and quality of the university so that it will demonstrate to you what it's capable of and what it can do in your life. I'd uh, love to have you be a part of it. I tell students all the time, look, I, I got a deal for you. Come. Uh, if you don't like it, if it isn't all that you thought it should be, come and see me, and I'll give you your money back. No takers yet. Now, don't scam me on that. But I know if you come, you'll love the experience there, and you'll be prepared for life. You know, the most important person 
in any situation is the person that has the accurate information, correct? I mean, you ask what leadership is? Leadership is having the correct information. If you have the correct information, if you can diagnose the situation, and because you understand the situation, you know the way out, or you know the cure, or you know the remedy, you're the most important person in the room. And in reality, the only people who really understand the way things are are people who understand the Word of God and see everything in the light of it. You then become priceless because you've got real answers. So go to uh, masters.edu, masters.edu, and roam around. We're going to be changing the website, upgrading that, and a lot of other things are going to be coming real quick, so you can take note of that. All right, let's turn to the Word of God. Uh, We have a little bit of time to do that. Uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John present to us the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in Hebrews 1 uh, this morning, that God has spoken in these last days through His Son, through His Son. God has spoken through His Son. God has put Himself on display through His Son. If you want to know who Jesus is, you want to know who God is, rather, you look at Jesus and you see God fully revealed there. Now, since we have decided that Jesus is Lord and that being a Christian is confessing Jesus is Lord, the real question is, what does that involve? You've been to church and somebody preached a sermon and said, why don't you pray this prayer? Or you went to camp and some speaker said, you need to invite Christ into your life. You need to pray this prayer, make Jesus your quote-unquote personal Savior. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, Maybe your parents talk to you about the gospel, and you prayed a simple prayer and uh, acknowledged Jesus as Lord. What's really involved in that? Is it as simple as doing that? Is it as simple as saying something somebody tells you to say? Sometimes you even hear a preacher say, now say these words, I am a sinner. And you hear people say, I am a sinner. And there's this kind of sort of surrogate repentance and surrogate faith offered up by the preacher, and uh, everybody just sort of trails along. What are we talking about when we say we are confessing Jesus as Lord? What's actually happening to us? How do we get to that point where it's real, where it's authentic, that we are acknowledging Him as Lord? Not too many years ago, I wrote a book, which some people were shocked by. The title of the book is Hard to Believe. Hard to Believe. And the title is what set some people off. What do you mean it's hard to believe? It's easy. All you have to do is believe. It's easy to believe. No, I mean to believe savingly. It's hard to believe. It's hard to be saved. It's hard to confess Jesus as Lord. It's hard to enter into the narrow gate. It's hard. Entering heaven is hard. It's been hard for God God has had to endure endless insults from sinners through all of human history. God has endured rejection, blasphemy of every imaginable kind. It's been hard for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also has revealed the truth about God, and the work of the Holy Spirit is ignored and rejected and blasphemed and corrupted. And so the Holy Spirit is grieved It was hard for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He endured humiliation, rejection, and even execution. It's hard, even from a divine standpoint, to to bring about salvation. But it's hard for the sinner, too. Very hard. It's not as easy as praying a simple prayer. It's not as easy as saying, I want a personal relationship with Jesus, so, okay, Jesus, come into my life. In fact, it's so hard that Jesus said to a group of people, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how easy is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? That's impossible. Camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And that's what our Lord is saying. The The Jews borrowed that phrase because camels were the biggest animals in Israel from the Persians. But the Persian view of it was, it's easier than putting an elephant through the eye of a needle, because they had elephants. That's a way to express impossibility. 
Salvation is so hard that it's impossible. It's even impossible for a rich Jewish man because the Jews believed if you had enough money, you could buy your way in. You just went to the temple and gave enough alms and poured enough money into the receptacles. And as you gave money and gave more money, the rabbis said, with alms or gifts, a man purchases his redemption. Jesus said, no. Even a man with all the money, even a Jewish man with all the money, even the man who brings it and deposits it at the temple has no more possibility of entering the kingdom of God than you do pushing a camel through the eye of a needle. It's hard. Now, in Luke 9, I want you to turn to Luke 9, and we'll look at a few verses there that helps us to understand this, and then we'll compare some other verses as well. This is very direct. This is the direct response to uh, the question that I've introduced. How do I do this? How do I get to the point where I've actually genuinely and authentically professed and confessed Jesus as Lord? How do I get there? Well, it's, it's hard. Verse 23, he was saying to them all, this is standard, this is for everybody. If anyone wishes to come after me, we'll stop there. Okay. Maybe you're saying to yourself, wow, what you said about the Lord Jesus today, awesome, wonderful. I see him in, in a far greater way than I ever did before. I understand he's the creator of God, the sustainer of the universe, all the things we saw in Hebrews 1. I heard about the wonderful necessity of uh, the new birth that we heard from John 3, from Austin. I, I see all of that. I know who Christ is. I know I need to be regenerated. I, I get all that. How do I come after Christ? How do I pursue Christ? That's my desire. Okay, this is for those who have that desire. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I've been in the church you know, for years, I, I grew up in the church, I'm there, but, but I haven't really come after Christ, I haven't pursued Christ, I've, I'm just sort of there. Or maybe you're saying, uh, this is all new to me, I, I showed up, I got on a bus and here I am and I'm just kind of finding out what this stuff is all about. But Christ interests me, the fact that He's going to forgive my sin, that He's going to take me to heaven instead of eternal hell, that he's going to fill my life with blessing and my eternity with incomparable bliss. I'm, I'm very interested in having forgiveness. I'm very interested in having a fulfilled life. I'm very interested in finding meaning in my life. I'm very interested in enjoying all the best that God can pour out lavishly on me. I'm very interested in escaping the lake of fire forever. I, I, I very much would like to be in heaven but, but what am I supposed to do about this? I, okay, Christ is the one. He's the only one. He's the only way. There is no other way. There is no other Savior. So what do I do if I want to come after Him? If I want to come to Him and, and follow after Him, what do I do? Here it comes. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's as simple as it gets. He must deny himself. And then take up his cross daily and follow me. Self-denial, cross-bearing, loyal obedience. Those are the three things. If you're writing anything down, write those three down. Self-denial, cross-bearing, loyal obedience. And this is daily. This is going to become a way of life. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must follow me. And all of this becomes a daily reality. Verses 24 and 25 explain it another way. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, that is, denies himself, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world or loses and forfeits himself? So this is an exchange. You can hold on to your life here and now and lose it forever. Or you can lose your life here and now, give it up, to Christ and save it 
forever. What good is it to hang on to your life in this world and forfeit your soul forever? The exchange here is abandoning self for Christ. Paul looked at his life, Philippians 3, very religious life. He looked at his life and he describes his conversion this way. He said, I looked at my life and it was all manure. It was all manure. And it all looked good. It was all religious. You know, he kept the law. I was zealous for the law, the Jewish traditions. He was a Hebrew, the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. But he looked at his life and all those things that he did, keeping the law, keeping the ceremonies. In fact, measured by the law externally, he was blameless. But he said, I looked at my life and it was was manure. That's how you have to see your life if you're going to think about making this kind of an exchange. Now, this is not what a lot of people say. This is not what a lot of people hear. Um, This is why that book, Hard to Believe, disturbed so many people. Because the assumption is, it's easy to believe, just pray this prayer. And very often, the, the appeal is this. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to have purpose in life? you want to be joyful? Uh, you want to rise above your problems? you want to fulfill your potential? Take Jesus and he'll do all that. It's based on a consumer perspective. It's about you. Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want, do you want self-fulfillment? Do you want personal gratification? Do you want to be everything you can be? Jesus is just the one who gives you all you want so you can be all you want to be. You hear people say, Jesus has come to make you healthy. Jesus has come to make you happy. Jesus has come to make you rich so that you can dress like the TV evangelists. And so that you can live like the TV evangelist. So like one evangelist gave a birthday present to the other evangelist of a new Rolls Royce with gold trim. Jesus came so you can do that. Or you hear Jesus came to offer you peace and happiness and freedom from problems and make you a better salesman and you can hit more home runs if you're a baseball player. Or it might come like this. Um, Jesus wants you to be able to love yourself more. He wants to elevate your sense sense of self-esteem. A number of years ago, I wrote a review of a book. Listen to what this book said. This is a book on salvation by a heretic, by the way. It says this. It is precisely at this point that classic theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. This master plan of God is designed around the deepest needs of human beings, that is, salvation, self-dignity, self-respect, self-worth, self-esteem. In fact, the pearl of great price is self-esteem. He went on to write, if we follow God's plan as faithfully as we can, we will feel good about ourselves. God needs you and me to help create a society of self-esteeming people. God's ultimate objective, he said, is to turn you and me into self-confident persons. And oh, by the way, he closed. Once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful he can really honestly accept the salvation God offers. Talk about turning the gospel on its head. It's all about self-esteem. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Contrast that again with verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Total self-denial. The word is a very strong word. It means to disown. It literally means to refuse association with. So let me spread that out a little bit. If you want to come to Christ, 
Now you have seen Christ in his preeminence and his glory. You're saying, I want to come to Christ. I want to come after Christ. I want to confess Jesus as Lord. What does that involve? It involves this, disowning who you are. Another way to say it is to refuse to associate any longer with the person you are. That's hard. That is hard. You're literally saying, please deliver me, O God, from the person that I am. I don't want to be this person anymore. This is an attitude described by our Lord in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 as being poor in spirit. What does that mean? Poor in spirit doesn't mean poor in money. It means poor in the spiritual sense. You look at yourself and what do you see? A spiritually bankrupt soul. I am spiritually bankrupt. I am void of God. I am void of true good. I am void of truth. I am void of motivation to glorify and honor the Lord. I am bankrupt. Just another way to express it, as Paul did when he said his whole life was nothing but manure. This isn't about you coming to Christ so he can make you everything you want to be. This is about you coming to Christ and saying, I'm done with who I am. I want to become who you want me to be. That's when your heart gets to that point, I'm done with my sins, I'm done with my selfish desires, I'm done with trying to be all I can be, I'm done with living for myself, I'm done with trying to run my own life, I abandon all of it, and oh Lord, please, I want to be whoever it is you want me to be. That's self-denial. Self-denial is a hard thing, really hard. To deny yourself, that's the hardest thing you do. And it continues, even after you're a believer, to be a very difficult thing. When you're neglected, for example, or purposely set aside, treated with indifference, and you sting and you hurt with the insult and the oversight, is your heart happy? And can you say, it doesn't matter how they treat me as long as Christ is glorified. When you lovingly endure people's evil and you say, doesn't matter what happens to me as long as Christ is glorified. When you see somebody else prosper and succeed in what you do and do it better than you and you have needs that don't seem to be met, can you say, It doesn't matter what happens to me if Christ is glorified. It's all about dying to self. You remember that expression in the New Testament? It's all about dying to self. Paul said, I die daily. I die daily. I just keep crucifying myself every day. I get up in the morning and I start to live and I just make sure I crucify myself again. It's about self-denial. We'll talk a little more about specifics on that in a minute. Second thing is cross-bearing. Now, when when you come to cross-bearing, you immediately think of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but um, that wouldn't be what the people thought about when Jesus said this. Why? Because Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. When Jesus said this, he hadn't been crucified. So this isn't some reference to some spiritual identification with Christ in his crucifixion, the only people who were being crucified were criminals. And they were being crucified by the Romans, and they were being crucified as a form of capital punishment. And around the time of Christ, there were as many as 30,000 people crucified. In one incident alone, 2,000 Jews were crucified. It was a form of torture. Crucifixion was used in Egypt. Crucifixion was used around Western Asia. Crucifixion was used in Italy. It seems to have come originally from Persia as a devastatingly agonizing form of punishment. What is Jesus saying? Deny yourself, and if need be, 
lose your life. This is martyrdom. This isn't some spiritual identification with the death of Christ. Are you willing to die? Is it that important? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to be nailed to a cross? The only crucifixion the Jews ever knew was the ones the Romans did, and they did them all the time, and they always crucified people that they deemed criminals on public roads, and they left them there to be eaten by the birds. They left them there as a sign. You don't want to mess with Rome. So you want to follow Christ, do you? Are you willing to deny yourself and say, this is so priceless, this is so valuable to me, that if I someday have to be nailed to a cross on a road, I'm willing. Because I deem that which is eternal far greater than that which is temporal. I understand that I would rather live in joy forever even if it costs me brief pain here. Paul says the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. Oh, by the way, he says you need to be crucified daily. Are you really willing to put your life on the line? Put your life on the line? Is it that important? There's an urgency in this. This is not saying, you know, I'd like to try it out. This isn't saying... Yeah, I'd like Jesus in my life as long as I get what I want. No, Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew that many who believed in him would die. Basically, the the apostles died. Only John escaped martyrdom, died as an exile. Nero's persecution broke out. Christians were killed. Another persecution broke out at the end of the century. First century, Christians persecuted through history. They're persecuted now. More of them dying today than any time in human history at the hands of Islam. How important is this to you? Is heaven this important? Is glorifying God this important? Is being forgiven and going into the glory of the presence of God important enough that you would say, okay, if I live, I live unto the Lord. If I die, I die unto the Lord. So whether I live or die, I'm the Lord's. Go back and read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs and read all the stories of the Christians who faced death and gave testimony to Christ. And by the way, when you get there, you say, oh, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could hang on in face of death. Yeah, because he will give you grace. Uh, Peter says that when you're persecuted, the God of grace, the God of grace, the spirit of grace rests on you. Believe me, you would in facing martyrdom, come off if you're a true believer just exactly the way the famous martyrs did because you would be given the grace to give a glorious testimony to Christ in that hour. So what what does it mean then to come after Christ? It means to deny myself, take up my cross daily, to be literally willing to put my life on the line. And then that third one, follow me. Follow me. This isn't about self-love and self-fulfillment. In fact, Martin Luther, Martin Luther launched his, um, his uh, bomb that started the Reformation 500 years next year, 1517, so 2017 will be the 500th year anniversary of Luther posting his 95 theses in the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And of those 95 theses, here's one, this is the fourth one. It is this. He protested that a penitent heart, a truly penitent heart, was characterized by self-hate. Self-hate. Quoting, and so penance remains while self-hate remains, namely right up to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. A true believer is not proud about himself, but ever and always hates the sin that he sees in him. Sometimes young people say to me, will I ever overcome sin? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. As you grow, sanctification is the decreasing frequency of sin. As you grow in Christ, sin will decrease. But here's the bad news. The good news is sin decreases. Bad news is you'll feel worse about it. 
less sin, but you feel worse because the less you sin, the closer you are to being like Christ. And the more you're like Christ, the more you hate the sin you see. So you sin less and feel worse because you hate the sin even more. This is all alien to a culture feeding on self-love, self-fulfillment, personal privilege, personal aggrandizement. Now let's back up and we'll wrap this up with some explanation of what it means to deny yourself. Okay? I want you to turn to Matthew 10. There are a few passages we're going to look at. Matthew 10, that will really explain to us, I think in unforgettable ways, what this self-denying attitude involves. Verse 34, Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, A sword, that's pain, suffering. Where's this sword going to come? Verse 35, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. What does it mean to deny yourself? It may mean, it may mean that your family becomes your enemy. It may mean that. May mean you have to say no to your family, the people you love. In fact, in verse 37, he says, if that keeps you from coming to Christ, then you're in this category. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who doesn't take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it if you hang on to it. But he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's the same exchange we saw in Luke 9. But here's the first thing. All human relationships may be negatively affected by you coming to Christ. You may find enemies inside your own family. That's always been the case in the Christian church that someone coming to Christ in a family is alienated from that family. That's the price many have paid. If you're not willing, then it's not real self-denial. Go back to Luke 9, and I just want to show you a few more passages. Back to Luke 9, and all the way down toward the end of the chapter to verse 57. As they were going along a road, someone said to him, just some guy walking along with Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Here's somebody who wanted to come after Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, all right, let me tell you how it's going to work. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We're not going to the palace. We're not going to the Ritz-Carlton. We're not even going to a comfortable place. We're going to be sleeping outside. Oh, really? Uh, Okay. uh, Maybe I need to rethink that. He said to another, with the same kind of attitude, follow me. Follow me and have no home. Follow me and have no material goods. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You say, what's wrong with that? He should attend his father's funeral. Here's what's wrong with it. His father wasn't dead. What's he saying? Let me go home till my father dies and I get my inheritance. If I'm not getting any money out of you, I'm going to go home, wait till my father dies, get my inheritance, then I'll follow you. He said to him, let the dead bury the dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Let me do a little missionary deputation. 
Let me go home and raise some money if I'm going to get into this deal and get some goods that I can take along so I'm comfortable. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't plow a field looking backwards. You got to know where you're going. You can't look at me, turn your back, go the other way and ever enter the kingdom of God. Listen, I offer you nothing but the kingdom of God. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no guarantee of anything in this life. My God will supply your needs, but this isn't the path to richness. This isn't the path to self-fulfillment. And if you're not willing to follow me and leave all of that behind you, you're not worthy to be my disciple. This is how it always was. The Lord made it hard. He didn't say, hey, look, I, I know it sounds harsh, but as we go along, you'll, you'll, it'll all work out. No such promises. No such promises. It's not easy. That's why Matthew 7, Jesus said that the door is hard to find. And then when you get there, it's very narrow. And when you go through something very narrow, you can't take your baggage. It's like a turnstile. You can't pull your baggage through a turnstile. You strip yourself of everything. You enter with nothing. And by the way, when you get there, it's a narrow way. The broad way, the false way, is a broad gate and a broad way. Bring all your garbage. Bring all your possessions. Bring all your ambitions. It says heaven, but it goes to hell because the devil's a deceiver. This is hard. It's a narrow way. You let go of everything. In the 13th chapter of Luke, really interesting passage. Jesus is going from village to village, verse 22, Luke 13, then in verse 23. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And they're going along, and they've been going along for a while now. I mean, they've been at this itinerant ministry for into their second year, and this is not a large group of faithful followers. They've had some folks who kind of came along, but when things didn't go their direction, they didn't like what Jesus said, such as back in John 6, they all just left. This is still a very small group. What's the deal here? This is God in human flesh coming to uh, welcome people into His everlasting kingdom. They're just so very few. And they, and they say, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And He said to them, verse 24, strive. That's the word for agonize, to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What? You mean it's hard? It is hard. Why? Because they want to enter, but they don't want to let go of their lives. Personal control, personal ambition, personal sins, personal desires. They don't want to say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm poor. I'm meek. I'm mourning like the beatitude attitude. This is not really a marketable gospel, by the way. This is a pretty hard sell. Go one more chapter into Luke 14. And uh, down in verse 28, or verse uh, 27. Well, let's back up to verse 25. Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said, here's Jesus doing evangelism, okay? Here's how he did it. He didn't say, pray after me. He said this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You ever heard anybody give that kind of an invitation? What do you mean? If you're not willing to walk away from all of it. And then in verse 27, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you better think about this. This is giving up everything. This is taking up a cross. This may cost you your life. Is it that valuable to you? Better think about it. Verse 28 gives an illustration. Which of you... When he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Look at his half-built tower because he didn't calculate what it would cost. Saying this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciples who doesn't give up all his own possessions. It isn't that the Lord may, may make you give them up. It is that this is so valuable, I will count the cost. And if the cost is everything, I'll pay it. That's a desperate thing. And one final illustration back in Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Jesus told two very short parables about the kingdom, about entering the kingdom in this little section. In verse 44, his first parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of heaven, meaning the sphere where God rules in salvation, that means salvation. God's kingdom, where he rules over his redeemed people, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The key phrase here is sells all that he had. Here's a man, by the way, People buried their treasure in fields in ancient times. They buried their treasure in fields. Like pirates, they buried their treasure so that it wouldn't be stolen. Eventually, they would come back and they would dig it up from that safe place. Here is a man, some guy who's plowing, working for some farmer, and he, his plow catches the edge and pops up a massive treasure. Hmm, what's he going to do? He discovered the treasure. If he was an evil man, he would have pocketed the treasure and split. But he's such an honorable man, he puts the treasure back in the ground, and then he goes, sells everything he has to do the right thing, to buy the entire field, which then gives him legitimate title to the treasure that's in the field, which would have been calculated in the price of the field. Honorable man. But the point is this, for that man to buy this treasure cost him everything he had. That's how valuable salvation is. Then in the next two verses, Jesus tells the same kind of thing in a different story. Kingdom of heaven, like a merchant seeking fine pearls. There were lots of merchants who looked for pearls. Here's one. He finds one pearl of great price. He can consolidate all his wealth into one massive pearl created by some super oyster. When he found the pearl, he sold everything he had to buy it. Bottom line is this. It'll cost you everything to follow Christ. It will cost you everything. But oh, by the way, the Lord will give you back 10,000 times 10,000 more in blessing. But we're not talking about that yet. We're talking about the front end. It is hard to believe. It is not easy to believe because the cost is so complete. And Jesus repeated this again and again. And so when you wonder why there are so few disciples, it's because the price was so terribly high. Listen to John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then listen to this. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, are you ready? The Father will honor him. You're going to love that promise, right? You've just been told it cost you everything. But the payoff, the Father who owns everything will lavish his honor on you. 
you'll give up nothing compared to what God will give you in return. That's the attitude that God has called us to have. It's hard to hate yourself, especially in this culture when everybody tells you how to love yourself. But until you do, you won't be desperate enough to put your whole life on the line and say, I deny myself, I'll give my life, I'll follow you, I'll be obedient, and I'll claim the promise that if it costs me everything, the Father one day will lavish His love on me. And what does that mean? That means that you become a joint heir with Christ, and everything that Christ inherits in heaven, you inherit with Him. Don't sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. Chase it now, and you lose it forever. Give it up now, and you receive it forever. Father, as we bow our heads in closing our time together, I I just ask that you would do the work that only you can do in the hearts of those who are here. To have this attitude is not normal, not natural. It's unnatural, it's supernatural. And that is why the Bible says that the only way we can follow you, the only way we can say Jesus is Lord is by the Holy Spirit. So, blessed Holy Spirit, life giver, regenerator, power of the new birth, awaken hearts, give life, and may the easiest cry of the hearts of these young people be, I will deny myself, I'll put my life on the line, I'll follow Christ no matter the cost, to one day receive an eternal weight of glory and the honor of my heavenly Father. Not only do I receive forgiveness of sin, escape hell, but receive eternal honor from God. What an offer of salvation. Awaken hearts to that. Even this moment we pray. Christ's name.